Well, I'm sure you all know the fable of Chicken Little. One day an acorn falls on a little chick's head, and he believes the sky is falling down, so he, he has to go tell the king about this looming disaster. Off he goes, and he's joined by other gullible fowl, uh, a duck, a goose, a turkey, I think. Before getting to the king, though, they meet a fox, and they likewise warn him that the sky is falling down, and he's very concerned. He invites them into his lair for safety, of course. And then, as you may know, he proceeds to eat them all. And so the fable warns against ignorance paired with gullibility, especially as it relates to the end of the world. Well, given the news headlines from the past 10 days, it would seem that most haven't heeded the lesson of Chicken Little after Donald Trump stunned the nation in becoming the 45th president of the United States. Countless news stories ran the the title, The Sky is Falling, as if his presidency means the end of the world. And so seemingly every news agency plus half the country has been in a state of depression, shock, despair, gloom, and worry over the past week at the prospect of a Trump presidency. Fear has gripped many over what the future holds for our country and the world. But wherever you land on the political spectrum, perspective needs to be maintained. For example, even though many are celebrating Trump's win, if the script were flipped and he had lost, they would be the ones in despair and and gloom over uh, the prospect of a Hillary presidency. They would be the ones claiming the sky is falling. In reality, though, the sky has always been falling. The same claim, the actual claim that the sky is falling has been made, that the world is going to take a turn for the worse after the elections of Lincoln, Wilson, FDR, Trump, Reagan, Bush, and Obama. The fact of the matter is, people have always thought that the sky is falling, that the world as we know it is about to come to an end. I mean, have you forgotten the Cold War with the constant threat of nuclear annihilation or the two world wars and the Great Depression before that? I mean, the point I'm trying to make is all throughout history, things have always been bad. Show me the age of lasting peace and prosperity. Show me the time when true righteousness prevailed on the earth or the land where sin didn't divide people. In reality, our world has never known real peace and harmony because this is a fallen world where sin dominates. All people are sinners. Sin separates and divides. That leads to conflict, which in turn produces fear, anxiety, and worry over the future. And with this election, you're just seeing the latest cycle of all that. Right now, it's those on the political left who are worrying about the future, but it comes to us all. In a few years, it'll be you again, and and so it goes. The sky is always falling. Christians are not immune to such worry and fear over the future. Christians are those who've been called out of the darkness into the light of Christ. That, of course, makes us enemies with the world, though. And so we wonder, and for some worry, what does that mean for us? When will they... Will they turn on us? How long do we have left? We've known a measure of peace and prosperity here in America, but you see the writing on the wall. How long until preaching the Bible becomes hate speech? When do we lose our nonprofit tax status and so forth? What will happen to us? I mean, if you think about it, fear, anxiety, worry, it's everywhere. And if all you do is you feed on those headlines, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be a wreck, constantly living on a knife's edge. Whether it's this election or the next or or this current event or that, from one thing to another, you're going to be running around frantically thinking the sky is falling and it's just a miserable way to live, dominated by fear and anxiety and worry. There is a solution to this, of 
course, an antidote. It is not to dig your head in the sand and just pretend everything's okay because everything is not okay. You need to know that it's a fallen world dominated by sin and things won't get better. In fact, they're going to get worse. That's the plan. The solution, though, is to broaden your perspective. You need a a deeper perspective, a, a biblical perspective on things. Instead of worrying about what other people think, spend some time worrying about what does God think? What does God think about what's going on down here? Is he worried and, and fearful and anxious? Are things out of control or does he have a plan? What does the future hold before him? You see, as you set to feed your mind with this, with the truth of God's word, with a biblical perspective, you realize that although you may not know what the future holds, you know who holds the future and everything will be okay. As you search the scriptures, you learn about God's plan. You find out he has a plan. He's working out that plan. And for those who know him, the future is bright. Now, things not right now, they may not be bright right now. This is a dark time and will only get darker, but God is still on the throne. And as Paul said, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. You've heard that verse is that really true? And do you really believe that? Because if you really believe that, what do you have to worry about? What, what are you so fearful of? You need to, therefore, feast on this biblical perspective, especially as the world seems to spin out of control, as the sky seems to be falling. You need to turn to God and his word for that balance, that perspective, that injection of truth, because God promises you peace both here and hereafter, those who turn to him by faith. So practically speaking, if you find yourself struggling with fear and anxiety and worry, especially after this crazy election season, then just try try putting down the TV remote, turn off your phone, pick up the word, and, and search for God. And specifically, try turning to the book of Philippians. Because it, it speaks most directly to all these matters. In fact, why don't we do that now? Why don't you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. After much anticipation today, we're, we're finally beginning a brand new study through a book of the Bible, namely Philippians. And technically, we've already been in Philippians for a couple weeks. We've been studying Acts 16, the founding of the Philippian church. We've already learned quite a bit. But now we're getting into the book, the letter itself. It's going to be an exciting study because this short little letter speaks profoundly into our world today. I mean, I know there's nothing in here about 21st century life in America, per se. But God's word being timeless and true still diagnoses our world's problem and provides the solution, even even today. This is very much true for Philippians. In a world dominated by fear, both then and today. Philippians tells us all about joy, true joy, joy in the Lord. It's one of the great themes of this work. There's this untouchable peace and joy that the Lord affords, and it cures all fear and worry. I mean, it it sounds pretty good. Sounds like you want that. And what makes this message from Philippians, though, really resonate today is the circumstances behind the letter. And you realize Paul, his personal circumstances behind writing this letter 
was nothing joyful. I mean, talk about the sky falling. He was in prison in Rome under the threat of death, waiting, just counting his days before he stood trial, before Nero, where his life was in the balance. He very well may be executed. That's nothing to be happy about. And the circumstances for the Philippians are not much better. They were in the deep poverty, struggling to get by. The wicked society around them was, was turning on them, making their lives much harder. To make matters worse, false teachers were starting to assault the church. And so from Paul to the church, these are dark, gloomy, depressing times. There's nothing happy or joyful about either of their circumstances. Yet, in the midst of that, how can Paul have this overflowing cup of joy in this letter? How can he have this perfect peace And how can he tell them and us to to do the same, to have the same, to rejoice even? I mean, how can you not worry and be anxious when you're sitting in jail waiting to hear if you're going to live or die? And how can you have peace when you're, you're stuck in poverty and the world is turning on you? The only answer to these questions is in Christ. Like we sang this morning, just give me Jesus. We rejoice not in our circumstances, but in the God of our circumstances. And that changes everything. Our joy is not in the world, but in the Lord. And that message is at the heart of this little epistle. And that's why it's so relevant today. I mean, it sounds good, right? Joy in the Lord, this never-ending peace that the world can't touch, they can't tarnish. A settled disposition that rises above all circumstances, and it sounds nice. And it's, it's found not in ourselves, not in the world, but in Christ. And therefore in Philippians, which chiefly tells us about Christ, that joy in Christ. And those two words dominate these four little chapters. Paul talks about joy here about 13 times. He talks about Christ 34 times in just four little chapters. We've got a lot to cover. It'll take us several months. This morning, we're just getting warmed up. Like I said, technically, we've been in Philippians for a couple weeks, you could say, studying the background from Acts 16. We've already learned a lot of valuable insight about the character and the nature of this church. There's still more to be said, though, as we get to Philippians itself. And today, I just want to help you see the big picture. In the months to come, i tell you already, chances are I'll preach a whole sermon on just one verse. There are a couple verses in here that they're just begging for their own sermon. But when you do that, it's so easy to get lost in the forest among the trees. You lose sight of the big picture. You're just drilling down and down and down. And so, all the more so, I think we need to start off by making sure we're set straight. We have our bearings. We we get the big picture. I mean, you can study a given tree inside and out. But unless you know that tree's place in the forest, you're still going to be lost. We need to see what's going on in this letter. And so as we properly embark on this new study, I want to mostly inform you today just of that, the big picture. We'll get to all the the little puzzle pieces over time, but you start off when you build a puzzle, what do you do? You look at the picture on the box, and that's what we're going to do today. Now to help with that, we're going to study the first two verses. And that sounds, you know, contradictory to everything I just said. <laughs> We're only going to look at two verses. But you'll see, because these two verses, the opening verses, it's Paul's introduction to the letter. 
And in a, in a special way, it really introduces us to the whole letter. You're going to see here there's a wealth of information loaded into just the first two verses. And from them, we really will catch a glimpse of Philippians overall. Through these opening verses, I want to help you understand the nature and the purpose of this letter. And I trust this study will pay dividends for us in the weeks and months to come. So that's enough of a setup. We can jump into it now. Let's begin by reading Paul's introduction to this letter to the Philippians. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. He writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know, when you read that at first, you probably think, okay, nothing special. In fact, you probably gloss over these verses if you were to read Philippians. Okay, Paul is basically saying, hello, you know, what's, what's the big deal? In one sense, there's no big deal. It is a very standard introduction to ancient letters. They all were the same. Name of the sender, name of the recipient, salutation. They all were the same. And Paul's letters all follow this pattern. But at the same time, Paul is always much more intentional, and he purposefully infuses in his introduction great meaning to all his letters. In fact, he said all the epistles that he wrote, they all have a framework, but they also all have their own nuance. And through them, Paul is already hinting at, getting at, the purpose of why he's writing. That's very much the case with Philippians. Just from these first two verses, we already can catch a sense of the themes and the current that runs through this letter. So why don't we use this standard greeting as like our outline and see if we can get a better look at what Philippians is all about. And that's merely our goal today, simply to get a solid introduction to this letter. Let's start at number one, the sender. The sender. I mean, it's straightforward. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ. Obviously, Paul is the sender. You'll notice right away, though, Timothy is listed. He's included. Timothy was Paul's convert and son in the faith. Don't think, though, that he was the co-author of Philippians. He wasn't. This letter squarely carries Paul's handwriting, so to speak. He's undoubtedly behind this letter. Timothy was present with Paul when he wrote the letter, though, and he may have been the scribe who wrote it down. Paul often dictated his letters. Someone else would write them down. may have been the case here, but but that's about it. Timothy, though, he's also relevant in a special way, though, to the Philippian church because of his relationship with them. We recall from our study in Acts 16, Paul found Timothy in Lystra, recruited him to join his missionary team, and not long after, they were in Philippi. So Timothy was there from the very beginning of this church. He, he saw the founding of the Philippian church. And he had been back a couple times. So they knew Timothy well, along with Paul, very dear saints to them. In fact, we learn later in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul was aiming to send Timothy to them yet again when he could afford to let him go, that he might encourage the Philippian church. Now, why doesn't Paul just go visit them himself? Well, as we said earlier, he's a little tied up right now, meaning he's in jail. He he can't really go. This was Paul's first Roman imprisonment. After being 
persecuted, almost killed by the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul was taken into Roman custody. He was held by the Romans in Caesarea for about two years. The Jews so persisted in trying to kill him, though, he eventually had no choice but to appeal to Caesar. Remember that? This was his right as a Roman citizen to plead his case before Caesar himself. So he was transferred to Rome, where he would be in custody for another two years. Now, thankfully, this time he wasn't rotting away in a dungeon. That would be his second Roman imprisonment. The first time, he was on house arrest. He was under guard 24-7, but house arrest, not, not too bad. It actually afforded him some freedom to minister to the gospel because a ton of people would visit him and he would just preach the gospel to everyone. And actually, we can see pretty clearly God's purpose in Paul's first Roman imprisonment. He wanted him locked in Rome where he could do nothing but preach the gospel for two years. That was God's intention, clearly. And that's what Paul did. And actually, this ties into part of Paul's purpose in writing Philippians. You know, the church at Philippi was actually probably the last church to see Paul before he was arrested in Jerusalem. The last time, therefore, they had contact with Paul was four years ago, four years prior to writing this letter. Now they learned he's being held in Rome, waiting trial before Nero, like the worst emperor ever, where he could be executed. And so they're greatly concerned. Of course, they care about Paul and his safety. They also care about the progress of the gospel. As we'll see later, even in chapter 1, verse 5, we learn the Philippian church, they partnered with, God, with, with Paul in the gospel from day one. They were his partners, he says, from day one. But when you think about Paul's circumstances, when he writes this letter, from a human perspective, it seems like the gospel is being thwarted. I mean, look, look about, think about Paul. Here's this guy. He's going on all these missionary journeys throughout the whole ancient world. He's he's making converts, making disciples, planting churches. He's doing so much through Paul. The gospel is marching, even even to Europe now. But now he's imprisoned. He's been in custody for four years altogether. And you're thinking, how is that God's will? Wouldn't God rather have Paul out on the mission field, just kind of doing his thing, marching the gospel, rather than just locked up? in confined quarters, able to do little? You see, when you think about it like that, it seems like his imprisonment means the gospel is, is coming to a halt. But you know better, I trust. God had Paul right where he wanted him. And despite his circumstances, the gospel was still advancing. In fact, through Paul's imprisonment, the gospel was able to go where it ne- otherwise never would have gone, into Caesar's own household we learn later. So partly, Paul is writing Philippians to encourage them that, look, he's wearing chains. I'm I'm in chains. But that doesn't mean God has abandoned me or the gospel. The gospel still advances despite my chains. In fact, through them, God has taken the gospel further than it would have gone otherwise. And he wants to encourage them with that fact. God is still working despite his circumstances God is still going to work despite their circumstances. And what do you think that means for us today? God still works. The gospel still advances through even our circumstances as well. So, for example, look at chapter 1, verse 12, just by way of introduction. Jump to verse 12. After his longer introduction, he says to them, 
Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, being imprisoned, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I mean, look at that. Paul's circumstances, even through them, imprisonment, the gospel was penetrating into Caesar's own household. I mean, otherwise, Paul would never have access to Caesar's household. But God's still at work in Paul's imprisonment, in the Philippians' suffering, and in our lives as well today. I actually believe this ties into a little bit how Paul introduces himself back in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ, literally slaves of Christ. That's how he introduces himself. I think partly he might want them to know that the chains he's wearing, they're for the sake of Christ. His imprisonment does not disprove the gospel. It adorns the gospel. After all, isn't this what Christ promised his disciples? Matthew 10, for example, you will be hated by all because of my name. They will hand you over to kings, to governors, on account of my name. And that's what he was living out. I mean, was not Christ himself first unjustly imprisoned and tried and executed? And so Paul's chains, they are for the sake of the gospel. That's something we learned well last week when Paul was imprisoned in Philippi itself. But that being said, this is not the only time Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ. That's how he introduced himself over in Romans, where he developed that concept, namely that well, we're all slaves of Christ. We used to be slaves of sin, bound, held captive by sin. But Christ, by his grace, set us free from the law of sin and death, chained us to himself. He is now our good master. And we learn this great truth that only in bondage to Christ is there freedom true freedom and peace and joy. And Paul, of course, because of that, viewed himself chiefly as a slave, a servant of the Lord, as we are to do as well. Now, that, that's all good. That sounds good. But there's even more going on here with this introduction in Philippians. What's really striking in verse 1, that first phrase in verse 1, is what's missing, what he doesn't say. Do you, do you understand or do you know what's missing that, that should be in here typically? It is Paul's reference of his apostleship. He doesn't mention his apostleship. That, that's odd. Because in almost every letter, he begins by referencing his apostleship. Pretty big deal. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans. He says, Paul, an apostle. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle, according to the command of God. He oftentimes wants them to really know, like, I'm an apostle. Only a few times does Paul fail to mention his apostleship. That is significant. It is. Why? Well, there's a few reasons. I think, for one, this further reveals Paul's closeness to the Philippian church. I mean, it's very evident. He loved this church. There's no sharp rebuke found in Philippians. He doesn't have to clean up any doctrinal mess like with the Galatian churches. Doesn't have to clean up any morality mess or moral mess like the Corinthian church. 
Philippi was just a faithful church, and that brought Paul great joy. And in light of that, it's, they never challenged his apostleship. They never doubted his apostleship. That was not the case in Corinth, for example, or Galatia. Some did challenge and doubt his apostleship, but not here. From the very beginning, we learned they, they believed the gospel with a true faith. They accepted Paul's apostleship, and they partnered with him from, from day one. So Paul need not list his apostolic credentials before them. But I think we take it even one step further. What I mean is when you get to know this letter, a huge theme stands out. We've talked about joy. There's also unity. Huge theme in Philippians. The Philippian church, they were rock solid. But the one problem they had was a lack of unity. We learn in chapter 4, there was a sharp division by two prominent women. Little cracks were starting to show in the church's foundation there. So Paul has a lot to say about unity in this letter. Specifically, he has a lot to say about the pathway to unity, namely through humble, sacrificial, selfless service. So, again, by preview, look at chapter 2, verse 2. He tells them, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And right after this, he goes on to speak of Christ, the ultimate example of this humble selflessness. This is the fuel of the church's unity. And many think, and I find myself agreeing, that Paul, in in chapter 1, verse 1, by not introducing himself as an apostle, but merely calling himself the slave of Christ, he is already leading them by example when it comes to this humble Service and selflessness. What's also interesting is later in verse 1, he calls out the overseers and the deacons. That's also unique. Paul never does that in any introduction in all of his letters. It was just We get the impression, though, he's dignifying them with their honorific titles, the overseers, the deacons. But he takes no such title for himself, save the slave of Christ. It just seems like from the very first words, he's putting on display what it looks like to consider others more important than yourselves. Either way, it's a lesson the Philippians needed to learn and we could learn as well. Already, though, you see some hints at the flavor of this letter just from the opening word, just from the mention of the sender. Let's keep going. What can we learn from number two, the recipient? Number two, the recipient. Again, very standard structure to letters, but there's more. To whom is Paul writing? Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Here we are reintroduced to the city of Philippi. We've already learned much about the character of the city from the past two sermons. Suffice it to say for now, Philippi was a leading city in the Roman Empire. Is in Macedonia, just north of Greece. It's a very Roman city, not Jewish at all, really. Thoroughly Gentile, and that explains why Philippians is one of just a few 
New Testament letters that never directly quotes the Old Testament. Now, we already covered how Paul founded the Philippian church. I want to tell you a bit about their ongoing history. Because after Paul started the Philippian church and he left, right away we learned the Philippian church, they started supporting him financially and otherwise. Jump ahead to Philippians chapter 4 to the ending. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says to them, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. That was his next stop right after leaving Philippi. Already, they're giving to him. They're partnering in the gospel. They're supporting him from day one. This is a thoroughly generous church, which is all the more remarkable when you find out they were in poverty. We learn that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses the Philippian church as an example of, of generosity and gospel partnership. In fact, this also explains partly why Paul is writing Philippians. Let me tell you how this letter originated, the story behind this letter. It all started when news of Paul's Roman imprisonment reached the Philippian church. They became very concerned for him, and so they dispatched Epaphroditus, who possibly was their pastor, to go to Paul. He was to bring with him a a gift, a generous gift, to care for Paul's material needs as he was in house arrest. And also, Epaphroditus was to stay with Paul, presumably throughout the term of his imprisonment, and to minister to his needs. So talk about concern and kindness and generosity. However, either en route or after arriving, Epaphroditus became sick. We're talking, he almost died. And news of his sickness traveled back to the Philippian church, and they became now doubly concerned for Paul and now for Epaphroditus. Now, he got better, but they never knew that. And so now another letter, another news comes back to Rome, and Epaphroditus now learns they're concerned about him. So now he worries about them and just goes back and forth. They're just worrying about each other. Communication is slow. Paul decides, therefore, you know what? Let's just send you back. Epaphroditus, just go back. Thank you for your service, but I'm going to bless you and just go back to the Philippians. They need you more than I do. Go back and comfort and reassure your church. So he sends them back. But before Paul sends Epaphroditus back, he pens this letter, the epistle to the Philippians, which Epaphroditus will take with him and deliver to the church. So when you understand this background, which you piece together from Philippians and Acts and so forth, Paul's purpose in writing the letter becomes very clear. Really, first and foremost, he's writing this letter to explain to the Philippians why he's sending Epaphroditus back so early. And he wants them to know Epaphroditus is not coming back because he failed or because he abandoned Paul or gave up on the mission. Rather, Paul is sending him back with his full blessing. He wants Epaphroditus to be received with a hero's welcome, not a rebuke, because he was faithful. Paul just wanted to send him back to bless the church. So, for example, speaking of Epaphroditus, look at chapter 2, verse 28. Paul says of him, 2.28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. 
Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. He wants them to receive Paphroditus with open open arms and joy as well. So first, he's writing for that reason. Secondly, he's also giving them a personal update, talking about his imprisonment as we already covered. It is actually advancing the gospel. He tells them how he's going to send Timothy pretty soon as well and that he wishes to visit them if he gets out. And side note, He's writing the first imprisonment around AD 60. He will get out. He will visit them again. Third, a third reason he's writing, Paul is writing to to thank them for their generous gift. Remember, Epaphroditus brought a generous gift with him. So chapter 418, he says to them, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. And so in this regard, Philippians, it's like a thank you letter. He's thanking them for their their gracious gift. That's not quite all. So that's a lot already, but it's not quite all. Now, when Epaphroditus came to Paul the first time, he, he let him know how things are going at the Philippian church. Mostly things were good, but there were some issues that came to the surface. Unity was a problem, like I mentioned. False teachers were starting to show up around the church. Also, many were being weighed down with their sufferings, leading to fear, anxiety, and worry. They were having a hard time living in the dark world around them. So Paul writes to address these concerns. It kind of sounds like today, by the way. So we find in chapter 3, he has much to say about warding off false teachers In chapter 4, he gives the antidote to fear and worry. All throughout, we find the theme of joy prevalent. because That's the answer to so many of their problems. The Philippian church members were suffering these terrible circumstances, just like Paul, in a sense. That should not diminish their joy, because their joy is not tied to their circumstances. Their joy should be tied to the Lord. And, And you can't lose the Lord. Therefore, you should rejoice in the Lord always. That's his message for them, for us as well. Now, as we already mentioned, he's got a lot to say about unity and the path to unity, namely humble service. Remember, we learned last time from the very founding, this is a diverse church. Think about the first members of the Philippian church. You've got Lydia, a very wealthy merchant lady in her household. You've got the Philippian jailer, and his household, maybe throw in that slave girl who is freed from her demon. And it's just such a, a diverse socioeconomic group. But I think Paul even alludes to their unity in chapter 1, verse 1, in his introduction. Going back to the intro, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Again, it's actually rare where he calls out all the saints. He only does that in Romans and First Second Corinthians. Notably, though, Romans and the Corinthian church, they had trouble with unity as well. And it appears he wants to stress they're a unit. He's writing to all of them. They are one church, all made saints, knit together in Christ. Now, look, if you've got a Catholic background, just forget everything you know about the word saint. You may be conditioned to believe a saint is an extraordinary believer who, who performs great deeds and, and good works and is later officially canonized by the church and and made a saint. And you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. Instead, the Bible uses the term saint to refer to all believers, great and small. 
The term literally means holy ones. And again, in Christ Jesus, that's what we are. We are holy, set apart unto Christ. If you are in Christ by faith, you are holy by calling. And so actually we find Paul's introduction to be backward, or backwards rather, by today's standard. We would expect Paul the apostle to be called a saint and the common people to be called servants. Yet Paul calls himself the servant and he refers to them all as the saints. But rightly so. Now to be sure, they they weren't really holy. We're not holy. We're sinners, depraved and lost, yet Christ makes us holy. If you're in Jesus by faith, he makes you holy, makes you righteous by calling. And the purpose of the Christian life is to grow in that holiness and conduct as well. We'll see that in chapter 2. Well, finally, I'll just mention back in verse 1, Paul also calls out the elders and the deacons by name. We've already talked about them. I'll just say that the term for overseer or bishop, episkopos in the Greek, and the term for elder, presbyteros, and the term for pastor, poimen, they're all used interchangeably in the New Testament. They all refer to the same guy, the men who are called to, to shepherd the church, to oversee, to, to feed, to guard, to teach the flock. And together with the deacons, those who serve more with their hands, Paul mentions them by name and greets them. Because, look, they're the ones who are ultimately going to be responsible for leading the Philippian church in joy, in unity, by word and deed. They've got to lead by example. So he calls them out. So already, like I said, there's more than meets the eye in these just the opening verse. In seed form, key themes already pop up. And we'll see a little bit more of that now with number three, the greeting. We'll finish here a little bit more. Number three, the greeting. From the sender to the recipient to the greeting. Again, it's standard. Verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typically in ancient letters, You mentioned the sender, the recipient, a standard greeting. Paul has his version of a standard greeting in every letter. Grace to you and peace. That's what he says. Every letter, grace to you and peace. Now, just because it's standard, though, don't take it for granted. This simple greeting carries with it a ton of meaning for Christians, which is why he probably uses it in every letter. It starts with grace. And is is that not the basis of all that we have in Christ? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved. Romans 3.24, you've, you've been justified as a gift by his grace. And see, when you've received God's gracious gift of salvation, you've been cleansed by his grace, forgiven by his grace, reconciled. What results? Peace. You get peace. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord. Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace comes first. Peace flows thereafter. But these two words perfectly sum up all we have, as he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, although this applies to everything Paul wrote, it certainly doesn't diminish its relevance to Philippians. And just to springboard off these words here and further introduce Philippians, again, just think about unity, this really big theme what is the basis of our unity even today with one another? What's the, what's the basis of our unity? Is it not this common grace and salvation which we all received 
And that in turn brings peace. Sin divides people. But Christ, he came, he reconciled us to himself, and then he put us all into one body and knit us all together. And that's the essence of our unity with one another. Though no matter your racial or socioeconomic background, there is this oneness in Christ. It's so sad to see our nation divided, especially now along racial lines again. If only they knew the unity in Christ, the oneness that the church should have. And we need to reflect that oneness. That only can happen, though, if you see one another through the lens of grace, which leads to peace with God and even your fellow man. Grace and peace. Same goes for joy. Another prevalent theme. What's the source of our joy in the Lord? It's not our circumstances. It's Christ. Specifically, the salvation he brought to us. I mean, if you're depressed while thinking about your salvation, something's wrong. I mean, that should give you joy. We think of the grace he brought us, which results in eternal peace. And look, if you set your mind on this, Philippians chapter 4, on these things above, what do you really have to worry about? And so it goes. These truths are at the core of that perspective shift that you need that we started talking about at the beginning. You've got to see what God has done for you in Christ. See yourself, how God sees you, through the lens of Christ. And you understand the peace he brings to you. It really changes everything. It transforms everything. This is how circumstances like imprisonment and the threat of death can be transformed into opportunities for the gospel. This is how their suffering and poverty can become chances for the light of Christ to shine in the darkness. And this is how, by recalling grace and peace, that thanksgiving and joy replaces fear and anxiety and worry. I mean, think about it. You're you're worried, you're afraid, as you just meditate and recall all that God has done for you, the grace you've received, the peace you have, that fear and anxiety should melt away. To the degree that you trust God, it will all melt away. Ultimately, in Christ, we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. And to the degree that you set your mind on things above, you will experience the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Philippians chapter 4. Now, I'm not trying to say Paul necessarily means all this just by these two words in verse 2, but these words are fountainheads, and the truths that flow from them we'll see over and over again in Philippians. There's a lot more to say, much more we will say in the weeks to come as we go through Philippians. We'll be fleshing out all these verses, all these themes. I hope and trust for now, though, that this sets your bearing straight, gives you that, that overview, a flavor of what this letter is about. We'll be drawing from this background countless times in the weeks and months to come. But already I want you to realize there's much for us to learn, even today, at a church level. You know, of all the local churches in the New Testament, Philippians, probably the best. You know, they just had it going on. They, they knew what they were doing. They truly had a love for the Lord and enduring faith. They had some struggles. We all do. But their faith was genuine and their love for Christ and the gospel and others was real. A true love and enduring faith. You know, that continued even after Paul's day. I'll just tell you a story. Fifty years later, 50 years after Paul is dead and gone, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, he's being transported to Rome 
to be executed for preaching Christ. His sentence was to be torn to the, or rather thrown to the wild beasts to be torn apart in the Circus Maximus, the arena. En route, he was under military guard. They stopped at many cities, kind of like when they transported Paul to Rome. They stopped at Philippi and Ignatius talked to the Philippian church and they immediately became concerned for him, praying for him. Later, the Philippian church, they wrote to Polycarp, he's the bishop of Smyrna at the time, They wanted copies of Ignatius' letters. Polycarp's response to the Philippian church has survived. An excerpt I'll read you from F.F. Bruce's commentary. And so he writes to them, Polycarp writes to the Philippian church, and he expresses joy that they have, quote, followed the example of true love and have helped on their way those who are bound in chains, end quote. This time... He's not talking about Paul. He's talking about Ignatius. But look, they're still up to it. They're still at it. There's still this love and concern for all and those who would give their lives for the gospel. And he says, such chains are ornaments for the saints. He says, quote, they are the diadems of those who've been truly chosen by God and our Lord, end quote. And then Polycarp adds, quote, I rejoice also that your firmly rooted faith renowned since early days, endures to the present and produces fruit for our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. I mean, just, just listen to that quote. Think about it. Their example still shines. He knows the reputation from early days. You guys have had this true love, enduring faith. And you know what? They still do. They still did. It endured. What an example. Even after all these years, their love for and devotion to the Lord was so real, it endured. And that's the true mark. We would do well to learn likewise from their example. Just what it means to faithfully follow Christ. And that's what we'll do in the weeks and months to come. Already as a church, though, let's be encouraged to follow this pattern of true love and enduring faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what what a joy it is just to begin a study through one of the books of your scriptures, one of these letters written by Paul, written by men, received by men, yet at the same time infused by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are your words, God, that you find true and profitable for us even today, still inspired, still all that we need for life and godliness. And it's our delight to study this epistle of joy. We need it, Lord. Especially given what's gone on the past weeks and months, these tumultuous times, fear and worry and anxiety have gripped the hearts of many. We need these reminders of things above, of, of grace in Christ, all that, you've done, all that he has done for us, the joy that is already ours and hidden. We need it to set our mind on these things, Lord, for in this we have peace and, and grace and, and comfort and, and joy. We look forward to this study. We pray, as always, you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. But already this morning, Lord, encourage us just this special example of this special church. A couple thousand years ago, they're no longer around today, but nonetheless, their example persists. What a, what a love, what a true love, what an enduring faith they had for you and for the saints. May that be our mark as well, Lord. Our prayer is that others might say of Berean Bible Church, they have this true love for the Lord and for the saints as well, and their faith endures. May we leave encouraged in this and pressing on as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.